Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It's Monday, and it's kind of gloomy here, kind of cold. You know, I guess that's kind of been a thing I've said at nauseum over the last, like, what, two weeks or so, so I guess I'll just shut up about that. But anyways, Monday, I hope your weekend went fairly well. In terms of sports, it was a great weekend. In terms of skiing, it was a great weekend. Today, you know, just a Monday, but... Tonight, Packers-Rams, I'm always uh, nervous slash excited. Both of them have pretty depressing records, so it's going to be a race to the bottom, a toilet bowl, whatever you want to call it. But anyways, I'm shot out of a cannon this morning. Had a lot of coffee. Let's just get right into it. I want to kind of focus the bulk of this episode on Peru. And I talked about Peru, I believe it was last week, but now things have kind of, speaking of toilet bowls, really gone down a toilet bowl at this point. Ever since Castillo tried to overthrow the government and create a one-party state, things have not been looking up, and there's been a lot of violence lately. And I guess I wanted to start with a kind of interesting story that I saw this morning in The Guardian. And it's kind of insane, and I knew nothing about this until this morning, but it's a good way to start discussing the chaos that we're seeing in Peru right now. And basically, as I'm recording this, I'm looking at pictures of tourists, um, some Americans, some other countries, getting evacuated out of Machu Picchu due to intense protests that are blocking the escape routes. So, you know, just some background here. I was in Machu Picchu back when I was in high school. One of my favorite trips ever, by the way. Machu Picchu is just phenomenal. And we did the Inca Trail to the old citadel. I recommend people read some books on Machu Picchu. Fascinating site. But anyways, there's a train though. So we hiked to Machu Picchu, but There's also a train at the bottom of the canyon, very far down from where Machu Picchu is, and it takes tourists from other regions like Cusco or wherever to the bottom of the mountains where Machu Picchu is located. Then you take a bus up this kind of sketchy but beautiful scenery view drive to the site. And basically in this situation, they are doing helicopter evacuations because protesters are blocking pretty much all ways out. I mean, I guess if you were a distance runner, maybe you could run the Inca Trail and get out of there. But basically, most tourists come via the train and the train is blocked. And yeah, they're pretty much it's becoming kind of a crisis for especially the tourism sector of Peru. And the Guardian notes here in this interesting article in quotes here, travelers, including some Americans, were trapped after train, tra- train tracks sorry, were blocked with rocks, and that's according to eyewitness reports. The government of Peru is organizing an evacuation via four helicopters of the most vulnerable foreign tourists from Aguas Calientes slash Machu Picchu village. And the U.S. Embassy in Lima has been coordinating. I also read, which is never really a good sign for travel, the U.S. Embassy, the U.K., or sorry, the U.S. State Department, And advisories from Spain and the UK have said, if you're thinking about going to Peru right now, you should reconsider travel and basically don't go. First time I've ever seen that in recent times, probably since the days of like the Shining Path attacks and stuff. So that's not particularly good. But obviously it's, obviously there's bigger issues than the tourists who could afford to go here. So I'm not focusing on this because I just feel awful for the tourists. But of course you do have vulnerable people stuck up there. There's one way out of the area. And it's, kind of a nightmare. And the Guardian does note in quotes here as well, about 400 tourists at the site have been evacuated by tourism police to the Olentay Tambo district northwest of Cusco. And the Ministry of Tourism said on Saturday it's planning to facilitate humanitarian flights. Jesus. All those words don't sound good when you're trying to go on a nice holiday to Machu Picchu, right? And 
I mean, just on a light note, I guess trying to lighten up this lovely topic, is that one can only imagine how badly, I guess, the Peruvian government probably wants to get this over with because it's awful for tourism, right? And Peru definitely, his economy does rely on tourism quite strongly, in the words of Donald Trump, quite strongly. But anyways, yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating to see what's really happening there. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because the protesters blocking basically the only exit from Machu Picchu are believed to be supporters of the former president, Castillo, who is the teacher. He was a teacher, right, and a son of peasant farmers, kind of a real leftist, rural fighter of the poor in theory, of course. There's always the theory added here. And basically, since he was removed, you know, I, I did an episode so last week, so I'm not going to go into all the details, but he tried to create a one-party state and blah, blah, blah. And he's no longer there. And I guess there's been a lot of protests in regions that supported him over recent days, and they've involved hundreds taking to the streets, disrupting road and air transportation. And it's been a nightmare for the Peruvian government, which is kind of a transitional government while they wait to hold elections to get a new president. And just, you know, as a rehash, last week, President Castillo was removed after trying to do kind of a systemic coup or a legal coup to get rid of Congress and put power into his hands. And in this area of Peru, Castillo is super popular, kind of in these more traditional indigenous regions, these poor regions, these rural regions. Like Lima and a lot of the coastal cities are definitely not in support of Castillo, but the more you get into kind of the old Incan territories, indigenous areas, there's huge support. And Castillo won this unlikely election, and now he's out of power after his attempted coup. And he's really not losing support amongst some and I think their issues are that he's this temporary, or, or that the temporary president right now is, is Dina Boluarte, and they think she's illegitimate because, of course, she was just appointed once they removed Castillo and people are pissed off. And since this has happened, Peru's declared a state of emergency involved because there's been looting, violence, people dying, this protest blocking people from getting out of Machu Picchu. It's kind of a nightmare. And The Economist notes in quotes here, a state of emergency was declared in Peru after the impeachment of Pedro Castillo, a left-wing president who was ousted after he attempted a coup. And from what I'm seeing, and things are changing quickly, but at least 20 people have been killed and 500 injured in the unrest that erupted pretty much after the government suspended rights to gather and there's been curfews in major cities. Like, the government's kind of having to do this. Like, I'm never a fan of these type of situations, but what are you supposed to do? Yeah, and um, like I said, the new president, Dina Boluarte, has tried to quell unrest, and she's done it by announcing that a presidential election would be held in December of 2023. Now, I actually, when I was first reading this, thought it said December 2022, which sounded better, but this is another year. Um, I think she's going to have a very tough job on her hands because Peru is so divided and so chaotic and so just corrupted in terms of politics that, you know, they've had four leaders in the last two years, so not fun. And I think part of the issue here, too, is that, and it's something I can definitely understand, though I don't really know what the alternative is, is that it does seem like Peruvians are sick of people being placed into power without elections, right? They've had four presidents, like I said, and only one, Castillo, was actually elected recently. So, I think it's smart for Boluarte to call this a transitional government, and she does seem more competent. She also is on the left, I should note, so it's not like she's some right-winger taking over or anything, but of course the people are not going to be happy. And I guess the protests really started taking off 
because she made, which I would argue are necessary, changes to cabinet members. Basically, she removed some of the cabinet members that were with Castillo. And this happened over last weekend, so a couple days ago. And this pissed people off. And I should remind people that Castillo, I, I talked about this last week, Castillo put very incompetent people into power. And I, I think I said something to the effect of like, some of the people that he put into high cabinet positions were even less competent than he was, and he was quite incompetent. And so I think she kind of had to do this just to kind of keep the government afloat while it does try to transition. But of course, you have misinformation, disinformation, political division. And I think the fact that like you have kind of the coastal cities that are in more support of the new government and didn't like Castillo, and then you have like the rural working class people still supporting Castillo, it shows just major divides in Peruvian society and just kind of this boiling over of turmoil and political corruption that we've seen. And I should also, I should also note here that there's military factions that have unleashed waves of violence aimed at forcing Boluarte to, to resign. I don't think as of now there's any military support, like technically for this, but they've done a lot of bad things like burning down an industrial plant in one region. They've occupied airports, like I mentioned, trashed cities and towns. And some of these are former Castillo officials. So you do have like politicians that were on his side or in his party that are getting involved. And there is an article that notes here, and it's kind of dark, Castillo backers are trying to provoke a civil war pitting Andean Peru against the coast. And look, I, I've been to Lima and Andean Peru, and the coasts are definitely more European and Asian influenced. Like it's a lot more middle class, upper class, working professionals, immigrants, Right. It's it's I mean, it's similar to a lot of countries where the coast coastal cities seem to be more affluent. And the Andean Peru was kind of the ones that were subjugated by colonialization and imperial Spain and blah, blah, blah. And so there are a lot of cultural divides in Peru. And it sounds like there's a spark happening right now with what's hap with what's going on there. And I do think trying to like some of the chaos that Castillo's supporters are doing will backfire though, because it's actually just going to hurt the workers and supporters of Castillo's movement. And it's kind of antithetical to what he wanted to do. And, you know, he was a rural school teacher, leftist. It's always funny how, you know, the road to hell is paved on good intentions, I guess, because that's, I think what we're seeing here again. And if the issue doesn't, I mean, couldn't get any more difficult, I guess you could say, I've also been reading that another issue in this situation is that I've seen that there's multiple left-wing governments in Latin America that actually want Castillo put back into power. And a lot of them are the usual subjects, Bolivia, Colombia, Mexico, which is not great, but I'll get into that in a minute. Also, you have like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. These are all one-party states, so it's not particularly surprising that they also support a one-party state. But... Apparently, apparently this is not good, and I would argue it's problematic because it could just cause more tension and could even give legitimacy to Castillo and his supporters to try to get back into power. It could embolden him. And look, this is like, like him or not, like his policies or not, the guy wanted to completely overthrow the system and wanted to be an autocrat. And he wasn't a competent leader, so do you really want an incompetent guy surrounded by incompetent people having a one-party state? I don't. Maybe you do. Let me know if I'm wrong, but that just doesn't sound good to me. And one example that is kind of troubling, though, is AMLO, our friend that I talked about last, last week, you know, the Mexican president, leftist as well, kind of an autocrat, in my opinion. 
He wants to, you know, just to refresh people, he wants to erode the election board that has kept elections fair in Mexico because he thinks he had previous elections that he lost stolen. But anyways, he wants, he basically wants Castillo still. He's voiced support for Castillo. And it looks like he's really showing his true colors now in what he probably wants in Mexico because he has basically said something to the effect of supporting uh, Castillo being being reinstated as president in Peru. And the Wall Street Journal has a good piece from last week, and it notes here in quotes, or not last week, yesterday, I think it was. And it notes here in quotes, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, may be revealing more about his political ambitions than he intends with his demand that deposed Peruvian president, Pedro Castillo, be restored in office. And, of course, the article talks up how it's not surprising that, like, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia which are all one-party states, support Castillo. But Mexico is kind of troubling to be supporting Castillo because it is a democracy, right? And I think AMLO, if he had a total say, would prefer it not to be a democracy, but it is a democracy. And AMLO basically is insisting that because Castillo was elected, his removal is anti-democratic and it's autocratic and it's not legitimate. And I don't think AMLO understands the basics of like a Republican or Democratic system where you have checks on the executive, there's limits on the executive to authority, and everything Pedro Castillo did was completely antithetical to the Peruvian system. I don't think AMLO is being honest here in Mexico because he has abused power and wants a one-party state, so of course he's supporting other regional actors that want it as well. And we have to remember that they tried to impeach Castillo many times. And there were also like impeachment guidelines or also removal policies from office when the president is unfit. And they never could because of the democratic checks. There were always people on the left that did not support impeaching, impeaching Castillo, so he stayed. But after this attempt to get rid of Congress, finally they had the grounds for removal. So it was done in a democratic and legal way. It's not like they just removed him from power. And I think people need to remember that. And I think, of course, like we're starting to see fractures in democracy around the world because when you have a divided population, it can be troubling to see how democracy actually ends up working. And I think we're seeing that in Peru, but I'm going to move on from that story. But I'm, I think this all really depends on, I guess this all depends basically on how Boluarte, the current transition president, handles this. You don't want to come down with an iron fist or use too much force on the protest because you don't want to basically incite more division, but you also need to bring back some sort of stability and monopoly on force until elections can be held. So I think we, we could be looking at kind of a troubling period ahead for Peru because nothing's been getting better over the years. Elections seem to be just kind of problematic in Peru now, and there's a huge inequality gap and just political ideology gap in Peru. So yeah, not, not, not good news. Um, I, I hope they get all the tourists out of there, and I hope the violence can stop. Moving on, I wanted to talk about a story that is in the United States, so we're, we're leaving South America for a moment. So much happening there, like I could probably have a, just a complete podcast on that. But anyways, I want to start with another story here that's not really surprising, but I think it's just very symbolic of everything that's wrong with American politics and the grift that seems to continue. Basically, there's a guy named George Santos who is, excuse me, a new Republican from New York, who was recently elected to Congress. One of the guys that was instrumental in turning some of those districts from, uh, from blue to red. And according to the New York Times, it has a report that came out today. 
basically it looks like he fictionalized parts of his resume, actually a good chunk of his resume, not even small parts. And basically his resume was a big grab for a lot of independents and people that might have voted blue and then switched and voted for him. And a lot of his resume appears to be fake. And Axios has a good article from this morning on it. And the article is called The Murky Details in One Congressman-Elect's Campaign Biography. And it's by Aaron Doherty. Doherty, sorry. And it discusses in quotes here, Republican Representative-Elect George Santos clinched victory on Long Island last month. But large portions of his resume, which he made central to his campaign, have been called into question. Santos was elected in November as a gay, non-incumbent, born to Brazilian immigrants. <laughs> also, his biography highlighted stints at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, and he noted that he worked at his family's firm. And apparently none of this is true. But anyways, um, the Axios article also discusses in quotes here how Citigroup and Goldman Sachs told the Times, New York Times, that they had no record of Santos ever working there. A spokesman for Citi was not able to also confirm to Axios that Santos was employed with the bank. A Goldman Sachs spokesperson also confirmed that they had no record of employment for Santos. And before we continue, can I just ask the thing that just came up to my mind and probably would come up onto the mind of others is like, it's kind of hard to lie. Like, like, why, like, why did you think you could get away with this at this point? Like, we live in an age where everything is accessible, transparent. It's easy to find things on people. Like, you know, when you have everything from LinkedIn to databases, like, come on, man. Like, people are going to find this out eventually. Like, I don't know if this guy is stupid or arrogant or just thought he could get away with it. Like, people can look this stuff up. I uh, Yeah, like, what are you thinking, man? But anyways, I, I think that would be enough to get an applicant in trouble, right? Like lying about your employment history. But apparently he also lied about a nonprofit he started, if that wasn't enough. So we're already checking off, okay, the main bulk of his career, a lie. Now his nonprofit he started is also a lie. That's another check. So he said that he ran a 501c3. So that's the nonprofits that can't lobby. They're, they're not a 501c4. And it was a nonprofit animal rescue organization called Friends of Pets United. And apparently a search on the IRS's website could not find a listing for a charity by the name. I also, I also looked on Candid, which I used in grad school when I was researching nonprofits because I, I took some classes on nonprofit management. And I did not find it there either. And Candid is a very good database. It pretty much has every nonprofit, every 501c3 you could ever want. And not there. <laughs> so unless he's some elusive nonprofit, but usually you have to legally like register them and they have to be in these databases. So it probably doesn't exist. Also, he went on to say that he went to New York University, Baruch College, yet there's also been no records of that. So let's see, he's lied about what he started, he's lied about where he's worked, and he's lied about where he went to college. I mean, I don't know what the hell this guy's thinking. And if I was a voter there, I, I would be irritated. Now, of course... This Santos guy has hired an attorney, and I, and I briefly want to just read what the attorney has said because it's very fitting of kind of gaslighting everyone about it. It seems to be a common tactic on the cultural right. You know, let's just gaslight people, kind of just don't back down, don't apologize. And so Joe Murray, who's the attorney for Santos, said here in quotes, George Santos represents the kind of progress that the left is so threatened by, a gay Latino immigrant and a Republican who won a Biden district in overwhelming fashion by showing everyday voters that there is a better option than the broken promises and failed policies of the Democratic Party. Okay, hold up. If, if, if his resume is true, good. I'm, I like to see like a kind of 
successful Republican who doesn't fit the kind of white mold or the white straight mold win, good. You got a gay Brazilian immigrant, good. That's not, I think, the problem here, buddy. Mr. Attorney Mr. Murray here, I, I think the problem is that the guy is just completely full of shit, apparently. And unless all this comes up, who knows? Maybe the Times didn't do enough digging, but it seems like it's been pretty much backed up by every source I have seen on the internet. And it's just this weird gaslighting that I don't understand of like, oh, it's just the left is threatened by this guy. It's progressives that are turning this. It's, it's like, that's not the problem here, man. And it, it's really telling to me about how conservatives and the right think about these things is everything's kind of a battle. And no, I, I think it, I don't think it is illegal. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think it's actually always legal to lie on your resume, but I think for Congress it should be. And you know, like when I apply for jobs, I can't just lie on my resume because there are serious consequences if one does so. I, I think for Congress, it should be even more stringent, and it, maybe it should be illegal if you lie about your record, because voters should know who they're representing. And of course, both sides do lie. Of course, we have shady figures all over politics, so it's not anything like really new. But it, it just doesn't seem like something we really want prevalent and existent in our politics. And yeah, this guy's just kind of a scam. And I think you always have this kind of fine line where because we're in a democracy, you should not limit anyone from voting. Like Lauren Boebert won her election fair and square. She's crazy. She's always in domestic fights with her husband. She's been arrested multiple times. She's not a good person, like, but she got elected. So I, I think in a democracy, you have to say she won, right? Same with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I would never vote for her, but democracy is like that. And that's, I think, one of the issues with democracy is pretty much anyone can get elected if the people want them. But now this, this is different to me because this guy actually has lied about his resume. And if people maybe, maybe if you didn't say you worked for Goldman Sachs, ran a nonprofit, went to NYU, maybe if some of those things weren't true, people wouldn't have voted for you, right? So I don't know. It's, it's just kind of another irritating story that does not really surprise me because nothing does. This, this episode today might be a little bit shorter, but I do want to talk about one more thing before I am out of here and... Basically, what I'd like to talk about is, well, probably later in the week, I'll talk about some updates on the war in Ukraine, because apparently officials are basically saying that Russia is preparing for a winter offensive. I mean, I think we've all known this is coming. We're, we're more than halfway through December. Things are getting cold. I think a lot of our fears have been realized in that. I know we are talking about getting, getting more weapons to Ukraine, even though I know we do have shortages in the United States now, or at least that's what they say. But... Lots of things happening. Vladimir Putin hasn't nuked anybody yet, so I guess we can count that as somewhat of a victory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll probably talk about that later because it is getting cold in Ukraine and the Russians are preparing for that. Of course, we'll see if they actually can be prepared and respond. But what I do want to talk about is our buddy Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky. And he has a little bit of a row going on here with FIFA, which is fitting because FIFA is an atrocious organization. I will save you guys the time. I don't want to rant about FIFA anymore. There's plenty of episodes where I do, but basically Zelensky just wanted to wanted a video shown at the final yesterday between Argentina and France that was about world peace and support for Ukraine during a genocidal attack on the country. And there's an article that writes here, Qatar supported the president's initiative to put out this video, but FIFA blocked the initiative and will not allow the video, the video address of the president to be shown before the final game, the statement said. And basically, Zelensky just wanted to put out a message of unity and peace 
maybe call out Russia a little bit. And he wanted it put out. And look, like, thousands of people are dying. Hundreds of thousands could over the winter. It's a bleak situation in Ukraine. And I think there should be global unity for that. So I don't know what the hell Qatar's problem is. I mean, not Qatar, FIFA's problem is. But it's just a bad look, I first have to say, when Qatar actually apparently was supporting the initiative to do it. But then it was FIFA itself that did so. And... Of course, FIFA has said that they didn't want to get too political. I, I, I think it was Zelensky who did an interview with CNN, and he told CNN that the Ukrainian government was informed that FIFA regarded the message as too political and said they had sent a copy of the text to the address of FIFA headquarters in Switzerland. So FIFA's saying this is too political. FIFA likes to, I think FIFA likes to avoid politics because the organization knows that it's just on the wrong side of pretty much everything in this case. And I mean, God, I have so many things I could say about this, but (laughs) to save me from getting too irritated, I think what I would say is I didn't know calling out a brutal one-sided massacre in Ukraine was political. It'd be one thing if it was kind of like a gray topic, like maybe, maybe you wouldn't want to have like President Biden putting out a video for FIFA calling out ultra MAGA. Like, maybe you wouldn't want that because that would be political and it's about the politics of a country. But right now, in all of Europe, we have rising fuel and food prices. We have inflation. We have a complete catastrophe happening in Ukraine. We have Russian people suffering as well. I don't think that's political. I don't think it's political to have a message of unity, especially from the president of a country that's been invaded for getting closer to a year now. So I am just not at all surprised. And Zelensky's office also said, in quotes, it will distribute the video independently if FIFA doesn't air it and said their decision to block it would show FIFA has lost its valuable understanding of soccer as a game that unites people rather than rather than supports existing divisions. Of course, like this video would not unite everyone. But look, FIFA to me has just shown time and time again where it stands on issues that matter to people. And it is, it's too bad. It's, it's too bad, but I don't really know what anyone would really be expecting here because this organization time and time again does this. So yeah, bad news. Luckily, the World Cup was entertaining, but I wonder how many more of these World Cups are going to really happen without FIFA just getting just smashed by it. And, you know, I mean, I've talked to Uber drivers from like India and Pakistan, who also agree with don't keep it political. Like, I understand the argument of not making FIFA too political, but sometimes you have to just make statements, especially when it's stuff like what's happening in Ukraine. I also wonder if Budweiser is going to go through with that lawsuit against FIFA. And I I forget if it was with Qatar as well or just FIFA, but, you know, they had this contract, like billion, billion dollar contract, you know, to supply beer for the World Cup. And of course, less than a week before the World Cup, they pulled out on this deal. And... I would like to see Budweiser sue FIFA. I think that would be pretty entertaining because they they just really messed this up. So anyways, uh, like I said, a little bit shorter episode today. There's still a lot happening in the world. I saw the Proud Boys are going on trial today for January 6th stuff. And uh, it, has anyone got Trump's trading cards? Let me know if they're cool, the NFTs. And anyways, I'll be back with another episode tomorrow. So take care. And you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You know the deal. Adios. Thank you.